Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. If you are able, please stand to show reverence to the Lord as we hear his word. Verse 7, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, as you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. The New Testament reading is from 1 John 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the Lord's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, thank you that your word is a mirror for us. Help us, Lord, as we look into the mirror of your word and enable us by your spirit to see ourselves and to not walk away unchanged. Help us now by your spirit, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, good, morning. good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. As you know, we're in a series on discipleship, and we've been learning what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And there are a lot of reasons to do this, and in a sense, every Sunday, whether, whether we say it's discipleship or not, it's always about discipleship. It's always about following Christ. And, and in our times, you know, many are, will say and are saying that they, they are following Christ or that they are willing to follow Christ, but they want to do it on their own terms. They want to serve God as they'd like to think that he is and not as he has revealed himself to be. Too many folks want a Jesus who makes them feel good about themselves. He helps out their self-esteem issues. and He tells them how wonderful they are and how much they're loved, but doesn't demand absolute obedience. Never mind all of that talk about loving 
my neighbor as myself, or yet, let alone loving my enemy. Now, we've been saying that that discipleship is stewarding the unity that we've been given by Christ. And some would think that that's a reductionistic description of being a disciple. And, but I would say it's not reductionistic at all, but, but it's, it's the practice of being a disciple. You say, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, it's understanding the distinction between what a thing is and how it functions. I can understand, so, you know, I have a griddle at home. I love my griddle. You know, and, and I understand what the griddle is for. But I would look pretty stupid if I strapped a steering wheel to the griddle and an engine and a transmission and bigger tires and shock absorbers and started driving it down the street. You would think, is that a car or is it a griddle? Maybe he doesn't know what a griddle is for. <laughs> so it's, it's the distinction between what, what something is and its function. So the distinction is between what a disciple is and how the disciple is to function. And see, if you believe that being a disciple is as the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, the ISBE, says that being a disciple today is one who believes Christ's doctrines, rests upon Christ's sacrifice, imbibes Christ's spirit, and imitates Christ's example. Then you must believe the way the disciple functions is based on the way Jesus functioned in a broken world. And that's key to understand that it, you're functioning in a broken world. Things, things don't work the way you think they work. The, the problem is we are used to the brokenness of the world, and, and so it seems like the brokenness is right, and that my reasoning about the brokenness is right. But, that's, but when Christianity comes along and following Christ comes along, it's like it is so counterintuitive. So it appears to be upside down. So it's a broken world. And our scripture reading on which the, this sermon is based tells us how Jesus functioned. He loved. How did he show his love? The text says he laid down his life for us. And if this is how Jesus functioned in the broken world, then how should anyone who rests upon Christ's sacrifice, imbibes Christ's spirit, imitates Christ's example, i.e. a disciple, function? Well, the answer to that question is in the text. And to grasp how the disciple functions, we have to, to see the obligation to our brothers, have an open heart toward our brothers, so that the outworking of love for our brothers flows since that has been the operation of our elder brother. Now that's the outline. And here's point number one, the obligation to our brothers. Look at 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See, there is an obligation to our brothers, this verse tells us. 
And the obligation, the obligation is a duty to love our brother. But what is an obligation? I know I might be botanic here, but what is an obligation? Well, the word that's translated ought is a word that means debt. You know, anywhere you say you ought to do something, you're saying that I feel obligated to do it. It's a, it's a word that's translated debt, and it, it's what you owe. And now someone might ask, you mean I owe something to people? I have an obligation to people? Yes. And in the context here, John uses the example of Cain to illustrate this in a few verses uh, earlier. You, and Cain, you recall, Cain, he, when God came to inquire about the, 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 the cry of Abel's blood being spilt, Cain, he, Cain asks God, am I my brother's keeper? You know, when you first read that, you, you're like, can he talk to God that way? He's being sarcastic. You know, he was, try, he was trying to get, Cain was trying to get out from under the obligation to his brother. He tried to escape the debt to his brother. And, so, and that's, debt is usually, we, thought, we think of it in financial terms. I, I borrowed some money from a person and now I owe them. But, but in this case, it's not, it's not borrowed money, but it's something else that's going on here. For what am I in debt? What do I owe my brother? Well, the second half of verse 16 says this debt is to lay down our lives for our brother. That's heavy. Lay down my life for, I owe my brother my life. You feel the weight of that statement? I owe my brother my life. And by the way, so just so you know, sin Sin always seeks to run away from the obligation we have to another member of the human family. And isn't this the scenario in Deuteronomy 15? What's behind that lending and releasing message of the text? It's showing that the obligation that you have to care for the poor among the nation. This was, this was to be a national way of understanding what it meant to love your neighbor as yourself and to love God as you love your neighbor. Listen to the text again, Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11. If among you one of your brothers should become poor any one of your in any one of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open your, wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. You see, the debt and the, the debtor relationship, they have a common factor. It's the Lord. He gives, he gives the land to both, and he commands them to care for each other based on his blessing. 
They were not to become so focused on themselves that they hoarded stuff to the detriment of their brothers. But they were to see mutual indebtedness to each other and, and to trust God to continue to supply what they needed to do what he commanded. Jonathan Edwards preaching on this passage, he said this, he said, this is a duty to which God's people are under very strict obligation. It's not merely a commendable thing for a man to be kind and bountiful to the poor, but our bounden duty. As much a duty as it is to pray or to attend public worship or anything else, whatever. And the neglect of it brings great guilt upon any person. As much as you are obliged to pray, and the scripture says to pray without ceasing, as much as you are obliged to worship, and the scripture tells us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, the old King James way of saying it. Now, when you think about that, that that's the way you are to, that's the obligation you have to your brother or your sister. That seems otherworldly. Yet, God tells us there's wisdom in understanding the obligation to your brother. In Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. See, the obligation becomes a feature characteristic, too, of, the early, of early Christians in Acts chapter 20, verses 33 through 35. You know, in that text, here's Paul. He's about to leave Ephesus, you know, and they're all tearful on the, on the, on the, on the seashore. And as, as he's about to depart, he's been, he's been with them for a number of years. And, uh, and the one thing that Paul wants to tell them, here's what he says. I coveted no one's silver and gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You see the obligation featured? You, we must help the weak recalling Jesus' words. You see, the disciples' function becomes clear when they recognize the obligation to their fellow human. And because we owe them our lives, we seek then an open heart toward our brothers. So verse 17 says this, this is point number two, but if anyone has the, the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You see, being a disciple of Christ is recognizing the debt owed to your brother and, and the payment of that debt because that, that payment of, the payment of that debt must come through an open heart. And John puts a couple of things together in this sentence. He says, we have goods. Our brother has needs. Our, our hearts can respond not out of what we have materially, not that he's not, he's not discounting what we have materially, but what by what has been placed in us, this love of God. That we have this world's goods literally means that you have what it takes to sustain life. See, the word for, for goods is the word bios, from which we get our word biology. 
John reminds us that the stuff we have is, is meant to sustain life. And isn't that true? You know, whenever you, whenever you, you eat a, a, a ripe piece of fruit, it's apple season, isn't it? I mean, apples, uh, uh, oh, I see, you know, I have never, until we moved to Delaware, I never, I never knew what a mutsu apple was. <laughs> have you ever eaten one? They are glorious. You, know, you, you bite into it, you know, and it's, it's sweet and it's soft and it's like, oh, this is great. It's a sign that we have a good God. Uh, but, but I mean, this, 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 is, this is what we have. We have this world's good. It sustains life. And we have, God has given these things to us for that very reason, to sustain life. And John reminds us that this is what, what the stuff is, that, why we have stuff. And this world's stuff for sustaining life, if you have it and you see your brother need, that sounds like Deuteronomy 15.7, doesn't it? Which, yeah, if, any, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. See, this is a command. It was a command, and, and we're commanded to live with an open heart and open hand. A clenched hand is the sign of a closed heart. And to this, John is incredulous. How can it be that the love of God is in a person like this? See, the question for, for the disciple is, do I know, do you know the love of God? Has the love of God, do you know the gospel? Has it been, do you understand what the gospel is? Because if, you know, if you're a disciple and you know the love of God, can, can you stand in the fountain of love and not become wet? Love is from God. Love is revealed in the Son of God. Love's method is the self-sacrificing Son of God who laid down his life. Love came to us in, in, in an odd circumstance and in, in, in not a way that we would have thought that it's because Christ died while we were sinners. Love's goal was to cover. You know what the scripture tells us? Love covers a multitude of sin, and Christ died for all our sins. Love made you alive. And if this is the way love came to you, how can you say God's love is in you, and yet your heart remains closed toward your fellow human? The Christian that closes his or her heart to the poor doesn't know the love that saved them. A church that closes its door to the poor has left its first love. It's this love of God that, that opens the hearts of the disciples of Christ. This is the love that the disciple knows he or she must work into their heart. So there will be this outworking of the love, of love for our brothers. Good verse 18. This is the third point. Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth. And you notice in the text, John, he started out talking to his readers as children, and then he switched to brothers when he makes the illustration of Cain and Abel, but now he's back to children. And all of this reminds us that, that we are relational beings, and that it is, it's relation, this, that this is a relation, relational beings. Poverty itself 
is a matter of, of broken relationships. Bryant L. Myers in his book, Walking with the Poor, Principles and Practices of Transformational Development, he defined poverty this way. Poverty is a result of relationships that do not work, that are not just, that are not for life, that are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of shalom in all its meanings. It's in, it is interesting to note that this view is consistent with the Hebraic worldview. This is the way Hebrews, this is the way, this is the, way the Jews view the world, in which relationships are the highest good, in which, while alienation is the lowest. You see, disciples, if they are to imitate Christ's example, then they're going to, to go about repairing relationships, the relationships that have brought on poverty. That's what, this is what disciples, this is what disciples do. And the text, the text is teaching us that our love has a practical power. Hallelujah. And we know this to be true in families, don't we? We know this to be true. Fathers work to provide for, the, in, in healthy families, fathers work to provide for their, for their families. Mothers work to sustain life in the lives of their loved ones. Children benefit from the work that their parents love supplies so that they will grow up, hopefully, to love in the same way. Now, isn't that why you're raising kids? Yeah. Yeah. Don't you hope that they're, that they're going to love other people? And particularly if you're a Christian, this is what you, yeah, you're hoping that they, they love other people in the way that Christ loved them. And you see, this text is, is reminding us that love is not word and talk, but it is deed and truth. It teaches us that, that we're not to simply give money to address the issues of poverty. But this, is teaching, this text is teaching us that there are restorative things that can and should be worked out because, and you know this to be true, money doesn't restore relationships. You know, the tendency in a broken world is to think that, yeah, if I have more money, my life will go better. Have you seen how many rich people commit suicide? No, money doesn't restore relationships. It usually divides. But when we seek first to restore relationships, we increase the chances of removing poverty. I read an old sermon talking about this very matter, and here's what the preacher said. He said, the great work of Christians and churches in this age is practically to apply them, deed and word, by exercising philanthropy in every needed form, not by the lavish and indiscriminate distribution of alms, but by making people strong enough to do without them. And he will best carry out the imitation of God who takes some distinctive parts in removing stumbling blocks out of the people's way and in leading them by the grace of God to repent of sin, to turn to God, and to lean on the Lord Jesus for power to tread the right way. But be it in the direction of removing bane or supplying a boon by means whereof the people may be made happier, cleaner, purer, kinder, holier, in any or all of these, a man may prove the love of God in him to be a practical force, yea, the restorative power of the world. That was written circa mid-1800s. And you know what was happening then? Slavery. 
this, this, the, 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 that Christians would take this on to end it. See, disciples are not mere talkers about love. Oh, I love you, but if you're hungry, I can't give you any bread. But they seek to be, they seek to be doers. Now, however, there's a caution when you hear a message like this. And you know what it is? You can, rec- you can recognize the obligation to your brother, and you can seek to develop your, an open heart for your brother and engage in, in outworking the outworking of love for your brother and yet have wrong motivation. Because you can do it for selfish reasons. You can do it for the praise of men. You can do it for, for, to receive a reward. It can be done out of, of I'm superior, you're inferior. But what keeps you? What keeps you from getting, from, from being driven in wrong motivation? Well, the disciple of Christ rests his faith in the operation of our elder brother. Look back again at verse 16. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See, the only way, the only way that you get beyond the wrong motives is to see and work the simple truth of the gospel into your heart. The simple truth. What what truth is that? He laid down his life for us. Christ, our elder brother, died for us. And so we all have we all have wrong motives towards our, our fellow humans. We do it, you know. We and, and, and it's it's not a secret. We know we know that we have we ha- we have wrong motives. Our self our motives ourselves. You know. And if, if you don't know, how can you know? How do you know that your motives are wrong? Well, one way that, one way that you can discover that your motives are are wrong is you can listen to the objections your heart throws up to, when it comes to helping the poor. Yeah. Because we do, our, heart, our hearts object. You know, there's an indication that your motivation is less than this simple truth that he laid down his life for us. Jonathan Edwards, he does a good job of, of addressing these objections in his, in his uh, a little treatise that he wrote on the Christian and, and charity. Uh, but but here, here are the objections. These are the objections. And you've heard these objections, and maybe, maybe you've even used them. Objection number one. He bought it upon himself. He's poor. It's his own fault. Or, this is objection number two. Wait until they ask. Wait, wait until they ask for, for help. The, the poor need to ask. And objection number three is, they don't deserve it. Because they're X, they're nasty, they're, they're ill, they're, 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 they're an objectionable person. They don't deserve it. Listen to Jonathan Edwards' response and his answer to these. And he's quote, he's, 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 he uses John 15, 12, and he says, This is my commandment, this is Jesus talking, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, the meaning of this is not that we should love one another to the same degree that Christ loved us, though there ought to be a proportion considering our nature and capacity, but that we should exercise our love one to another in like manner. 
It is especially reasonable considering our circumstances under such a dispensation of grace as that of the gospel. Consider how much God has done for us, how greatly he has loved us, what he has given us when we were so unworthy and when we could have no addition to his happiness by us. Consider that silver and gold and earthly crowns were in his esteem but mean things to give us and he has therefore given us his own son. Christ loved and pitied us when we were poor and he laid out himself to help and even did shed his own blood for us without grudging. He did not think much to deny himself and to be at great cost for us vile wretches in order to make us rich and to clothe us with kingly robes when we were naked, to feast us at his own table with dainties infinitely costly, when we were starving, to advance us from the dunghill and set us among princes and make us to inherit the throne of his glory and so to give us the enjoyment of the greatest wealth and plenty to all eternity agreeably to 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. Considering all these things, what a poor business will it be that those who hope to share these benefits yet cannot give something for the relief of a poor neighbor without grudging? That it should grieve them to part with a small matter to help a fellow servant in calamity when Christ did not grudge to shed his own blood for them. How unsuitable is it for us who live only by kindness to be unkind? What would have become of us if Christ had been so saving of his blood and loath to bestow it as many men are of their money or goods? Or if he had been as ready to excuse himself from dying for us as men commonly are to excuse themselves from charity to their neighbor. If Christ would have made objections of such things as men commonly object to performing deeds of charity to their neighbor, he would have found enough of them. You'll forgive me for reading such a long quote, but this is Grace Church. You're used to that. <laughs> But do you know, but do you know that Christ presents no objection every time you come to him for mercy? He doesn't hear your confession and say, no, listen, you're not, you don't deserve it. If, if he did that, who could stand? Christ, Christ, he, see, that's the truth of the gospel. That's the truth that we have to work in our heart. That, that every time that we come to him for mercy, we expect forgiveness. And you might think, well, you know, they might take advantage. Do you not take advantage of Christ's blood every time you come to confess? Of course you do. And you weep for it. And you're glad and you rejoice in the joy of his salvation every time he gives it. He is our elder brother. Cain hated and he killed. Jesus loved and he saved. Cain killed to benefit himself. Jesus died to benefit his enemies. 
And this is affirmed, brothers and sisters. This is affirmed to our hearts over and over again as we, as we, as you obey, as as you do it. Every it, it, the way the way that you know it is that you obey it. Jesus said to the disciples, "You're blessed, happy are you if you know these things. Happy are you if you do them." So it's affirmed to our hearts over and over again as we fulfill our obligation to our brothers and open our hearts to the poor among us. Let the outworking of love for our brothers flow and and speak and soak rather in the operation of our elder brother. And in so doing, we can know then that we believe Christ's doctrine, we rest in his sacrifice, we imbibe in his spirit, And we're imitating his example because he laid down his life for us to make us his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we long to be your disciples. We long, Lord, to to show who it is that you are, to to demonstrate this power of the gospel, that it to deepen our love for each other and our love for the poor among us in our city as well, so that the city might rejoice because of the righteous who are engaged in repairing relationships and seeing lives thrive because of the gospel. Because, Lord, you have helped us to understand that we are your people. Be pleased, Lord, to work in us. That is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Amen.